What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast, a bonus episode. Okay, hi, everybody. If you are confused why an episode is dropping on your feed today, then go back and listen to Thursday's episode because I was very, I failed majorly at trying to fit the Austin Yogurt Shop murders case into two parts. So here we are, (laughs) part three, bonus episode. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of inevitable because it's such a, there's so many details to the case, you know, so... There are, and I read a book about it, so, you know, when you read books, Andrea and I were talking about this the other day, but when you read books, you really go, like, very far in depth. Yeah. Yeah. Hence why our first 12 episodes, when we read books on the case, were 12 episodes and not, Exactly. I was thinking about that last night. I was like, our whole first season was one case. Off of books. Off of book. Yeah. It's crazy. So... So yeah, um, that is why there's a bonus episode today, but also I want to share a very, very exciting announcement before we get into today's episode. Drum I wish we had roll, like please. a, I know, I wish we had like a sound bar, like, maybe I'll, if I can enter a drum roll, I'll enter one if I can find one, then okay. there will be a drum roll here. Bye. <laughs> We are launching merch. Yay! Pew, pew, pew. I at least do my pew, pew, pew. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I am, we are so excited. I'm so excited. Yes. We cannot wait for you all to see it. And we hope that you love it as much as we do. It's so cute. We, yeah, we really like it. We spent a lot of time trying to put it together and we hope that you'll love it. Um, we'll share all of the details at the end of this episode so that, you know, if you're not interested, you don't have to hear it all here. Yeah. But they'll all be at the end. And then we'll also be sharing like previews and details on our Instagram. So be sure to go check that out. Um, but yeah, we're so excited and stay tuned to the end of the episode for all the details. Yeah. All right. So welcome back to part three of the Austin Yogurt Shop Murders. And let's just try- dive right in okay we left off in part two with mike scott at the austin police department calling his wife after being interrogated for 10 hours and he told her that he knew more about the murders than he thought so we're going to start by going through what happened in that interview and detective lara says something at the beginning of kind of the interview there and this was all videotaped and recorded so we know like everything that was actually said in it okay and he says something that i think really sets the tone for the entire interview so mike told them i'll be honest with you guys i have a piss poor memory so he's saying like i really don't think i remember much and laura says that's what we're here for to help you remember Mm. so i feel like that just already like sets the tone for the interview they're not like it's okay we just want to find out whatever you do know it's like we're gonna help you remember like we're gonna put words in your mouth (laughs) that's what that says to me yeah me too and if you remember from part two the detectives decided to interview mike because they were really looking for a weak link to be able to build a case against maurice pierce And detectives were quickly able to realize that they had chosen the right weak link. 
Mike recounted what he did on the day of December 6th, 1991, and at first he was pretty much staying consistent with the story that he told when he was interviewed back in 91. He kind of stumbled through his memory, and the detectives continued to assure him, you know, everything's there, it'll all come back, just keep thinking about it. Okay. A few hours into the interview, Hardesty, who was one of the detectives interviewing him, says, quote, Michael, we've been working on this a long time. We've talked to everybody, Maurice, Robert, Forrest, and we know what happened. We know more than you think we do, Michael. You're covering something up. Very manipulative, but I mean, I guess sometimes it's okay. You know, they have to do that. Yeah, and unfortunately, that isn't illegal. Detectives in interviews, they can lie to you. They don't have to, like, tell you the full truth. They just can't, I guess, like, physically coerce you. But yeah. they can manipulate you however they want. And Forrest, defi- or Forrest, Mike definitely, like, his mem- like he said his memory was bad. He didn't even remember the zip code of where he lived because he was, like, house-sitting, but he didn't even know the zip code of it. You know, like, he just definitely was struggled and, you know, he didn't finish school and stuff like that. So he definitely already struggled with yeah. memory and that kind of thing. And... This just, they were, they were able to get under his, like... They used that to their advantage, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. So Mike continues telling them, this is all I can remember. I'm not hiding anything. And honestly, this whole interview gets pretty frustrating because they're not doing anything directly coercive that could get them in trouble, but they're intentionally intimidating him, making him nervous, and making him, quote unquote, remember. Okay. The detectives tell Mike that they don't think that he killed the girls, but that he has knowledge of who did. So they basically paint Mike as the scapegoat and tell him that if he just tells them everything, he'll be in a better position with the grand jury, which is a tactic that uh, detectives will often use in interrogations. They'll say, like, if you confess, you'll be, you know, get a lesser sentence or will avoid the death penalty or whatever. That That is often used in these types of interrogations. Right. And then there's kind of a turning point in the interview that was seen on the video feed. So that video feed shows Mike alone in the room, and he kind of folds his arms together to form a pillow and puts his head down because he's been there for hours. And then suddenly he sits up, reaches across the table, and grabs some of the papers that Detective Lara had been consulting during the interview. So I'm guessing these have notes and like maybe crime scene photos and stuff like that. So he grabs those, flips through them, and then he puts them back down and sits there with his arms across his chest looking, quote, as blank as a white page. So it's almost like he realized something in that moment. Oh. Just over four hours into the interview, Lara and Hardesty get what they've been hoping for. They ask Mike, whose idea was it? Who started this? And after some back and forth, Mike states Maurice's. And as we know, that's what they were wanting. They were wanting Mike to name Maurice. Right. After this, they kept pushing, and it really just keeps going on like this, where they ask Mike questions, he says he doesn't know, they push him that he does know, and then Mike will tell some version of events, and then whatever doesn't match, the detectives will push back and get him to quote-unquote remember. And at this point, they weren't even really asking Mike what happened, they were kind of just telling him what happened. Mm -hmm. 
At one point, Mike literally asked, I didn't choke one with a garrote, did I? And then he also said, they didn't make me shoot them, did they? So, like, he clearly does not remember and is very unsure about what happened. Not only wow. does he not know details, but he's saying, like, did they did they make me shoot him? And it's like, I don't get how anybody could see this interview and say it was a fair interview. No, not at all. I mean, they they completely took advantage of the fact that he couldn't remember and they were just placing those mm-hmm. quote-unquote memories into his mind. Exactly. And he even keeps telling them, I don't actually remember any of this, but I can just see it playing out in my head. So it's almost like he's just like imagining what happened and that's what he's telling them because he wants to tell them because they're pushing him so hard. Yeah. So they just keep going until Mike admits everything that matches, you know, their narrative that they're trying to push. And eventually Mike did realize what was going on more or less and he asked for a lawyer. And even with this, they were like, well, why don't you just take a break and then when you come back, if you still want a lawyer, we'll get you one. So they really don't want him to lawyer up, obviously. Yeah, that's not good. they never said, no, you can't have a lawyer. We're going to keep questioning you. They just manipulated him. Um, So after... They t- he takes a quick break. Mike still asked for a lawyer. So Lauren Hardesty agree, but say, we- are you willing to just speak with one more person first? And Mike agrees. And that's when he meets Detective Robert Merrill. Merrill had been on the force for 19 years and had once worked with none other than Hector Polanco, hmm. who, if you remember from part two, was very well known in the police department for coercing interviews, basically, or co- coercing confessions. Yeah, straight up lying it sounded like (laughs) yeah and Merrill wasn't known for being like as coercive as Polanco he didn't have the same reputation as Polanco did but he was known for being really good at getting a confession out so Merrill began speaking with Mike and he was basically doing the same things as Lauren Hardesty but he was trying to get more specifics more details out of him Mike was at the APD office until after 10 p.m. that night when he finally insisted that he had to get home and he had been there for over 13 hours that's insane i feel like they're i mean i don't know there's such a gray area for me but i feel like there should be like a time limit that they can question people yeah but also like when they're guilty like they don't deserve anything so (laughs) yeah i know it's 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 like hard yeah yeah it's definitely a wavy line or like a gray gray area like you said so They send Mike home, and he agrees to come back the next day. So the next day, Detective Lara picked Mike up again, and Mike told him that he's scared, that he'll go to jail, that he'll get the death penalty, and more, but he just can't remember all the details from that night. And when he got into the interview room this second day, he told detectives that maybe he had lied the day before, because his heart was telling him that he did not kill those girls. So he's kind of saying, like, I don't think the stuff I told you yesterday is true. Like, I think, I don't think I was remembering correctly, because I don't think I killed them. Yeah, I feel like if you, you know, you can't remember certain events of certain nights, maybe you're intoxicated or something, I think you would remember killing someone. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I think so, too. Unless you had, like, a blackout rage psychological break or something. Yeah. Like, I don't know. But then, like, do you really think you wouldn't have, like, blood on you or stuff like that? Right. Yeah. 
I think kind of you evidence. Remember. Yeah. So, despite this, Merrill continued interrogating Mike the second day, and he was getting very frustrated because Mike was, you know, saying, I don't remember this, and changing what he quote-unquote remembered. At one point, Detective Merrill was alone in the room with Mike, and he took the gun that he had, he had the twenty two caliber that they had taken from Maurice Pierce in 1991. And they were, you know, they had been showing it to him and saying, do you remember this gun? So at one point when Merrill was alone in the room with him, he put the gun to the back of Mike's head. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yeah. And this obviously turned into like a scandal when that video footage was leaked. And yeah. at trial... Paul Johnson would come out and say that he just gave the gun to Merrill in hopes of scaring Mike into talking. And Merrill actually denied putting the gun to Mike's head in court, but it was literally seen on video. So now you're purging. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I don't think any, like, he ever got in trouble for it. And Shocker. Mike kind of, after this, gave in and he was saying, I might not remember, but it must have happened. And on Tuesday, September 14th, 1999, Michael Scott gave a 14-page written statement admitting to his participation in the murders and implicating Maurice Pierce, Rob Springsteen, and Forrest Wellborn. Wow. 14 pages. Mm Mm-hmm. Detective Lara, along with Merrill, Chuck Meyer, and John Neff, who was the task force supervisor, then headed up to Charleston to speak with Rob Springsteen. So the Charleston Police Department officer, Eric Hodges, and the APD and APD detective Merrill knocked on Springsteen's door just after 12.30 p.m. on September 15th. And Rob had actually been asleep because he had worked a graveyard shift at Kroger the night before, but he got up and answered the door anyway. And the officers took him down to the Charleston Police Department where they had set up a hidden camera and a hidden audio recording device to tape his interview. Hmm. Now, this becomes a big problem because the hidden camera that was there was really bad quality and it was hard to even make out the audio in some of it. And then the separate like audio device that they had only recorded three hours. And I believe he was interviewed for five hours. Okay. So... There were points where what was said in this interview had to come from the detectives, and that caused some problems later. Okay. But either way, in this interview, Rob started out calm, and he was recounting the same story about December 6th that he had shared back in 91. Then the detectives start going into the, you know, other people have said this, and other people have told us this. And Detective Lara finally gets to Rob When he says, would you be surprised if I told you that the Rocky Horror Show wasn't showing at North Cross on that day? If you remember, Rob had said that that evening he went to the Rocky Horror Show at the mall. Right. And so when Laura tells Rob this, it visibly shocks him and he could become kind of tense or he became tense and like unsure. And this definitely threw him off, which I don't know. I don't think this is the truth. I think it was showing that night. Oh, okay. Because he's like, wait a second, I saw this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and kind of make him not not trust his memory. Right. 
So after this, Lara then didn't directly say, but implied that they found Rob's DNA at the crime scene. But Rob continued to deny ever being in the yogurt shop, and he was like, I wasn't there. And the detectives, just just like they did with Mike, continued to hammer away. And eventually, Rob began to accept their version of his whereabouts that night. And in this interview, they were mainly focused on Amy Ayers, the only one that was found a little bit away from the other bodies and that was uh, shot a second time with a different gun. And just a warning because, you know, this does get a little bit graphic, but Laura kept pushing Rob about Amy, saying, quote, you effing know you effing raped her. Uh. Mm-hmm. And eventually... Rob admitted to raping Amy Ayers that night. Oh my goodness. But then just after 7 p.m. over, oh, six hours, I guess he was longer than five hours, into this interview, and before Rob implicated anyone else or even really directly himself, Merrill issued Rob a Miranda warning. And with that, Rob reacted by saying he needed to talk to his wife and a lawyer. So up until that point, he was almost in kind of a trance and wasn't really aware of what was going on but with that he was like oh shit i need to talk I have to my rights lawyer. yeah yeah so at this point he had given a verbal statement but a lot of the details didn't match mike scott's statement or the actual crime scene and rob would later say that in that interview room he gave up on himself basically assuming that afterwards he'd be able to take a lie detector test or give some sort of dna to prove that he wasn't a murderer mm. And that's kind of why he admitted to it, because he just, he wanted to get out of there, and he figured he it could be proven afterwards. Which is the story in a lot of cases. People falsely confess because they are exhausted from being interrogated for hours on end. Yeah. And then they're stuck. Yep. So after this, the APD tried to get both Maurice and Forrest to confess, but neither would. The APD then went to some of the original eyewitnesses to see if they could identify Maurice, Rob, or Mike. Both Daryl Croft and Lucella Jones, who were in the yogurt shop that night and saw people that kind of made them feel uneasy, both of them were re-interviewed and neither of them were able to identify any of the boys. Okay, that's good, I guess. Yeah. On Friday, October 1st, 1999, the local newspaper's headline read, Arrests Likely in Yogurt Shop Killings. Police have suspects in 1991 deaths of four teens. And in that article, it was reported that two of the four had confessed. And then on October 6th, all four men were arrested on charges of capital murder. So Maurice and Forrest were actually 16 and 15 at the time of the murders, so they were taken to juvenile court, and at first their names weren't released. Okay. And because they were in juvenile court, they both received bail. Maurice's bail was set at $1.5 million, and Forrest was set at $1 million, and both of these were later reduced. Mike and Rob, on the other hand, were charged as adults, and in the state of Texas, it is not required by law to offer bail to adults accused of a capital crime. So, they were not given bail. Mm. In the juvenile court, the judge, Judge Muir, 
read Maurice's and Forrest's arrest affidavits and called on two criminal defense attorneys, Guillermo Gonzalez and Robert Eisenhower Ramirez, Judge Muir ordered the state to make the 33 boxes of evidentiary material that they had gathered over the last eight years available to both defense attorneys. Wow. And then five weeks later, Judge Muir called a hearing to decide if the case should be reassigned to the adult system for trial. She was basically deciding if it was more likely than not that the young men had committed the murders. Criminal prosecutor Howard Buddy Meyer cited the confessions from Mike and Rob in which Maurice and Forrest had been named as co-conspirators. So he was saying, yes, they, they did it because they were, you know, named in, in these confessions. The two defense attorneys, Gonzalez and Eisenhower Ramirez, accused the APD of conducting a witch hunt in pursuit of Mike and Rob and then linking the statements they'd gotten from them to Maurice and Forrest. But on December 9, 1999, Judge Muir announced that she had found probable cause to believe that Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn had committed the crimes they were accused of and that she would remand them to the adult system, where the charges against them, four counts of capital murder, would be sent to a grand jury. In the criminal adult court, or just regular court, not the juvenile court, Mike Scott's family protested several attorneys appointed to him by the judge, and his family ended up hiring a man named uh, Tony Diaz. And Diaz was a lawyer that was kind of well-known in the area, but had been suspended from the bar, so he was willing to charge a low fee, and so they hired him. All right. Rob Springsteen's appointed attorney, Berkeley or Burke Bettis, immediately requested an examining trial, which is basically where a jailed but unindicted suspect comes before a magistrate who hears accusatory evidence and decides whether or not the suspect can be released pending the grand jury's decision. And Bettis was actually really smart to do this because in this trial, the DA would basically be forced to reveal a lot of its case. So, even you know, even if they came to the conclusion that no, he can't be released, they would have a good sense of what the DA's case was going to be against him. Right. We are super excited because today's episode is sponsored by BarkBox. As most of you guys know, my dog Mackie loves his chew toys, but they do not last very long in our house. And that's why we love our subscription service, BarkBox. BarkBox is a monthly subscription box that offers an array of theme boxes for your pup. Inside your box, you'll find toys, treats, and unleashed joy, thoughtfully designed to satisfy every dog's unique playstyle. BarkBox has several boxes to choose from, depending on your dog's needs, such as the Super Chewer box, which was designed to challenge and engage your pup for longer-lasting play. And that's what we need for Mackie. <laughs> right now, you can get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is up to a $35 value, by using our link www.barkbox.com slash inhumanpod. So treat your dog to what they love with BarkBox. www.barkbox.com slash inhumanpod for a extra free month of BarkBox. But one day before this examining trial was set, the grand jury indictment of Robert Burns Springsteen IV 
for capital murder was announced. And then two weeks later, the same grand jury indicted Michael James Scott and Maurice Earl Pierce on the same charge. Forrest Wellborn was not indicted at that that time with the grand jury, and the grand jury was actually extended to reconsider its decision on about him. And he still had that bail set, so he was released from jail, and he basically went back home to help his wife raise their now two children and to go back to fixing cars. And Mike, Rob, and Maurice were all sitting in jail and were going to be tried separately, but because their case was connected, their attorneys began working together to, you know, discuss the expert witnesses they were going to call and all of that. The judge for the trials was Mike Lynch, who had been a judge for nine years, and Mike Scott's trial was actually the fifth death penalty case that he'd been involved in over the last four years. Oh. 52-year-old Lynch taught high school history and government in East Texas for a year after he graduated college before he decided to go to law school at UT Austin. After law school, he worked at a criminal law firm for nine years, and after that, he worked for the state in the attorney general's office, and he also headed up a team in in Travis County, which is the county that Austin is in, to investigate government corruption and white-collar crime. And during that time, he actually became a colleague of D.A. Robert Smith, who was going to be the chief prosecutor in both Springsteen and Scott's trials. This kind of later became a point of contention because it was like the judge had worked with and was like more or less friends with the prosecutor, but that never like directly led anywhere. Okay. Judge Lynch had followed the yogurt shop murders for years, and the day that he first read about what happened was actually the day he was putting the finishing touches on his speech to announce his candidacy for district judge. And now he was set to try the case. Or to judge on the case. Yeah. Rob Springsteen had two attorneys heading into trial, Burke Bettis and Jim Sawyer. Sawyer was born in England but grew up in Austin, and he went to law school after he served in Vietnam. Sawyer and Burke were a pretty good team. Sawyer was kind of better in the courtroom, and Burke was better in the preparation and research. Within a year, Mike Scott's lawyer that his family hired, Tony Diaz, realized how wildly unqualified he was for a criminal trial, and the Scott family was able to dig up enough money to hire another respected criminal defense attorney, Dexter Guilford. But Judge Lynch didn't want any potential appeals on grounds of ineffective counsel, so he also assigned Carlos Garcia as the lead defense attorney for Mike. So Garcia came into this a little bit late. It wasn't until 2001 when he joined Mike's defense team, but he agreed to join Diaz and Guilford to lead up the team. Okay. The lead criminal prosecutor for the state was Robert Smith. Many called him the stiletto for his ability to anticipate defensive moves and quietly slice them to shreds, which, like, (laughs) I just think that's, even though I don't love this guy, that's, like, so badass. Yeah. (laughs) The stiletto. (laughs) That's funny. He was working with Darla Davis and Efrain De La Fuente on the prosecution team. Trial dates for Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen were set, but Maurice Pierce spent basically the next three years in county jail awaiting trial. And again, Forrest Wellburn was out of prison, working at his shop. Okay. 
And with that, the pretrial began. Between March 30, 2000 and January 11, 2001, 13 different pretrials took place all for all three of the indicted defendants. And while this was going on, Paul Johnson, the now lead detective on the case, was working to clear up the discrepancy between Mike Scott's description of the fire and what was known from the actual evidence. So in his confession, Mike had said that they had put supplies like styrofoam cups onto the girls' bodies and then doused them in lighter fluid and set them on fire. But the original arson arson investigator, Melvin Stahl, had said that the fire started up basically like up high on the ceiling and that the girls' bodies had been burned because of the heat, not directly from like the path of the fire. Right. But, you know... The, the only statement they could get out of Mike was to say that the fire started on their bodies. Okay. So Johnson finally got Marshall Littleton to do a fire model for him. And after a few tries, they found one that worked. That, you know, led to the damage left at the scene where it would have been started on the girls' bodies. And re- if you remember from part two, Littleton told him, m- told Johnson multiple times that doing a fire model was not a good idea because they weren't accurate, and right. especially with how little information they had, they just wouldn't be accurate. But there's, Yeah, there's no way to replicate to a perfect science. Especially with how little was known and how key pieces of evidence, like the, the metal shelving where the fire could have been started up high, being missing, there was just no way. But they were able to remodel it and find one that worked with Mike Scott's narrative or you know, quote-unquote narrative. Right. So after this, Johnson had Melvin Stahl meet with Littleton, and eventually Stahl basically agreed to go along with Littleton's model. In court, Stahl would testify that after recently examining the crime scene photos for the first time, even though he'd been the one that that took them, he had never, like, re-examined them. Yeah. That he figured out that he'd been wrong at the time. He said that he came to the conclusion that the fire had originated on the girls' bodies, not on the shelves, as he originally said. And Mm -hmm. that, of course, matched Mike's statement. Right. Rob Springsteen's trial began first, with the jury being sworn in on May 8th, 2001. And I believe he was only charged for the death of Amy Ayers. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I couldn't find what he was, like, directly charged with. I know it was capital murder, but I don't know if it was just for Amy or for the other girls. But if you remember, they were able to get him to admit that he had raped Amy. Right. So they were really going after, like, the death of Amy here. Yeah. And the DA was asking for a death sentence. A big piece of controversy in Rob's trial was whether or not Mike Scott's redacted statement would be allowed. So obviously the prosecution was pushing hard for it and the defense was pushing hard to have it suppressed. And after a lot of back and forth, Judge Lynch ended up paring down the statement, removing all names and first-person pronouns. So instead of it saying, I believe that she was working in the back room, it was believe that she was working in the back room. Which, like, (laughs) come on. Like, really? That's really going to make a difference? Yeah, that sounds stupid. That sounds really, like... (laughs) And it just... Not proper Even though it was redacted, No. And even though it was redacted, it, like, you you could still tell what's going on. Yeah. Like, 
especially in this case, I don't know. It just, it, it, I don't think it made a difference that it was redacted and pared down. Like, that statement shouldn't have been allowed. Right. I agree. And on May 18th, Judge Lynch overruled the defense's motion to suppress Mike's statement. When Jim Sawyer, Rob's lead defense attorney, heard of this, he said that his heart sank. And Rob said, quote, that was it for me. No. Jurors would later recall that this would be a key piece of evidence in convicting Rob. And this also became known as Judge Mike Lynch's biggest mistake because it would be the main point in Rob's eventual appeal. Mm. So after the statement was read in court that Friday, Lynch called Jim Sawyer and Robert Smith, the defense attorney and prosecutor, to his chambers where he offered Sawyer a deal for Rob. If he'd agree to a plea of guilty and then give testimony against the others, they'd take the death penalty off the table and give him a life sentence of no more than eight years, which would mean that he would have about five years left in prison. Wow. Although Sawyer was impressed with this offer, when he took it to Rob, Rob refused to take it. He was confident that he and the other guys had done nothing and he didn't want to testify against them because yeah. he'd be lying. Right. Ten days into the trial, the state rested its case. The defense began with calling Hector Polanco to the fan, and the judge had actually allowed the defense to bring in two of the other false yogurt shop confessions. So Sawyer called on Mike Huckabay to describe the interrogation of Alex Briones, who, if you remember, Polanco got that false confession from him. Yeah. And then they called in John Jones to describe the interrogation of Sean Smith, another false confession that Hector Polanco got. So I think they brought them in to kind of show, like, there were a lot of false confessions in this case because of Hector Polanco and just right. in general. So just because they confess doesn't mean they're actually guilty. Right. The defense went on, and on May 25th, Jim Sawyer called his final witness, Rob Springsteen. Now, he had advised rob against testifying if you know anything about criminal trials it is very rare for the defendant to testify in yeah, their own case in their own trial yeah but rob persisted saying he wanted to tell his story himself and he didn't do terribly on the stand honestly but pretty much everybody thinks it was wrong for sawyer to let rob push him and testify and after the fact, Rob was not happy that he took the stand because when the jury returned from deliberation, Rob Springsteen was found guilty of capital murder. Wow. So in a capital case, when considering punishment, the jury must consider three different issues under Texas law. So the first is basically the probability that the defendant will commit further acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society. Second is asking, while considering the circumstances of the offense and the defendant's character background, are there sufficient mitigating circumstances to warrant a sentence of life imprisonment rather than the death penalty? And finally, did the convicted person intentionally kill the victim? So if the answer to the first one is no, that they would not continue or uh, constitute a continuing threat to society, then the other two questions don't matter. Okay. But... If the answers were yes, no, yes, Rob would be getting the death penalty. And after 11 hours of deliberation, the jurors came to a yes, no, yes decision. 
So Judge Lynch imposed a sentence of death by lethal injection, and Rob was, you know, sent to death row, but would be getting appeals, because that's what happens when you are sentenced to death. Okay. But first, on August 14th, 2002, Mike Scott's trial was set to begin. In their case, in this trial, the state read Mike's entire eight-page, you know, like somewhat redacted statement to the jury. The state followed a similar story as they told in Rob's case, and Rob's statement was also shared in Mike's trial. The defense uh, focused on inconsistencies between Mike's written statement and what he actually said in the interrogation, along with inconsistencies between his statement and the actual evidence. They also harped on how the confession seemed more or less coerced. And Prosecutor Robert Smith did make one kind of big mistake in his closing arguments. He asked the jury to, quote, resolve whatever doubts you might have about the reliability of Scott's confession by noting how closely it corresponded to Springsteen's. So he's basically telling the jury, you know, any, like, reservations you have about believing Mike's confession, just look at how close it was to Rob Springsteen's. Why would they be so close if they didn't do it? Which is bullshit, in my opinion. Yeah, they're being coerced by the same people, essentially. Yeah. Yep. And these statements would later be judged as harmful and used in the eventual eventual reversal of Mike's sentence. After 22 hours of deliberation, the jury found Mike Scott guilty of capital murder. When it came time to deliberate what his sentence would be, they took only three hours and voted no on that first question of if the defendant would commit violent acts in the future. So on December 24th, 2002, Michael Scott was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 35 years. Wow. But the DA's office was not done. Maurice Pierce was next. They saw him as the ringleader, and his trial was set to begin on April 21st, 2003. But then, very unexpectedly, on January 9th, 2003, the Travis County DA, Ronnie Earl, came out and announced that the capital murder case against Maurice Pierce had been dismissed. This was because the primary witnesses against Maurice were Rob and Mike, and obviously they had both been convicted of capital murder, and because of that, Maurice couldn't have his constitutional right to confront the witnesses against him. So Earl shared, you know, the evidence that they had hoped would prove him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt had not been developed, so the state was, quote, unable to proceed at this time. That's So Maurice insane. was set free. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, out of the four of them... I- like, I could see it being him and not really anyone yeah. else. That's insane. So Maurice was free. Forrest was also out of jail and never charged. And Rob was on death row. And Mike was in prison. On March 1st, 2005, the, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the execution of offenders under 18 years old at the time of their crime was cruel and unusual punishment. So with that, Rob Springsteen's death sentence was one of the ones overturned, and he was transferred to a maximum security unit of the jail to serve life in prison. And all this time, Mike and Rob were both, you know, trying to fight with appeals just because of everything that had happened in their case. Right. On May 25th, 2006, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed Robert Springsteen's conviction and remanded his case to the Travis County District Court for a possible retrial. According to Judge Paul Womack, this 
came, quote, based on the U.S. Supreme Court case law decided after the defendant's trial. The admission of Mike Scott's statement violated the Confrontation Clause. A statement taken by police officers in the course of interrogation was exactly the kind of testimonial statement prohibited under this new analysis. The error was not harmless because there was no physical or forensic evidence connecting the defendant to the crime, and there was no witness that tied him to the crime, and the defendant had repudiated his videotaped confession, end quote. So he's basically saying testimonial, like, this type of testimonial could not be provided. So because there was no physical, forensic, or witness testimonies against Mike, and the only thing came from this confession that was deemed basically unconstitutional, how it was done, yeah, he his case was overturned. They basically were saying the introduction of Mike's statement into Rob's trial should not have been allowed because of the, you know, Sixth Amendment right, Rob yeah. couldn't confront, etc. Just like why Maurice's was, you know, his conv- or his charge was yeah. dismissed. And because that Mike's statement in Rob's trial was vital to the state's case, the conviction was overturned. Wow, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. And then in June 2007, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals also threw out Mike Scott's conviction for basically the same reason. Yeah. With this, D.A. Earl had a few options. He could ask the court for a new hearing, appeal the case to the Supreme Court, or he could try it in the same courtroom with the same judge once again. He could also offer Rob a deal, like another deal, and hope that he would take it, or just dismiss the charges altogether to try to to charge him at a later date when they had more evidence. Yeah, that's what they should do. Yeah. They need more evidence, like Yep. And either way, they'd have to go before a new grand jury with a case that did not depend on Mike's statement, and they did not have one. The state began working really hard to come up with some other physical evidence that could link the four men to the nineteen ninety one murders. So the DA's office hired the Fairfax Identity Laboratories of Richmond, Virginia, to conduct some new DNA tests on items recovered from Amy Ayer's body. This test would be for YSTR, a male-specific DNA that was not, this type of testing was not available in 1991 or even in 2001 during the first trial. So YSTR tests separate out male DNA from female And it's used when there's a majority of female DNA, like in the case of the swab from Amy Ayers. So the DA was hoping that this YSTR test would have at least DNA from one of the four suspects. In March 2008, as they were preparing for new pretrials, the defense teams were called into Judge Mike Lynch's chambers, where they were met with the prosecution. So the original lead prosecutor, Robert Smith, was no longer working on the case, so it was the other two prosecutors, De La Fuente and Davis, who were waiting there to tell them about the new DNA tests. The YSTR testing had revealed a previously undetected full male DNA profile in Amy Ayers' vaginal swab. So the defense lawyers were obviously shocked and nervous, but then... The prosecutors told them the news that would change, like, the course of this investigation. The full profile did not match any of the four men. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. 
I do. Mm -hmm. But instead of taking this as, okay, these guys aren't guilty, the state was now searching for an unknown fifth assailant that hadn't yet been tested. The prosecutors were still planning for Mike Scott's retrial to begin in May, and they they were determined that these men were still guilty. I mean, they're not good kids, but... They didn't, yeah, I don't, I don't think that they did this. They're, they're beating a dead horse at this point. I think so too. A reporter named Jordan Smith with the Austin Chronicles said in an article in late August that the state had expected to quickly find the match of that unidentified male DNA, but had found nothing in the last four months. And then in September, Smith reported that, quote, after eliminating 63 males, Travis County prosecutors still don't have a clue whose DNA they found. contrary to earlier claims. Mm. The defense sent the DNA evidence for more YSTR testing because only the prosecution had sent it so far, so they sent it to an internationally known DNA testing firm called Orchid Cellmark. And at this point, the state's case was falling apart. The day after Christmas in 2008, DA Ronnie Earle unexpectedly announced his retirement after 32 years in office, The first assistant district attorney, Rosemary or Rose Lemberg, stepped in as interim DA, and then a little bit later in early 2009, she won the election and was sworn in as Travis County's first female DA. Right at the end of 2008, Orchid Selmar came back with some interesting results. Not only was that full, unidentified male DNA profile found in Amy Ayer's swab, but there were also two or possibly three unknown partial male DNA profiles in swabs taken from Jennifer and Sarah Harbison. So here's what was found in the report from Orchid. Okay. Just as the state's testing found, a full male profile was found in Amy Ayers that did not match any of the four suspects. The same DNA found in Amy was also found in Jennifer Harbison's sample, along with DNA of her boyfriend. All four suspects excluded once again. So they, from the from the very beginning, they only thought that the one girl had been sexually assaulted, right? Right. And now it's proven that that's not true. Right. Huh. Mm-hmm. How'd, they, how'd they miss that? I don't know if it was just never tested. Why? <laughs> I don't know. That's so bizarre. Why would they test one and not all four? I don't know. Okay. A third male's DNA was also found on clothing used to bind Eliza Thomas's wrists. And then DNA from Jennifer Harbison's boyfriend and another male were also found in Sarah Harbison. (gasps) So DNA from Jennifer's boyfriend found in both Jennifer and Sarah indicated the likelihood that the same man raped both sisters transferring his own DNA and the boyfriend's to Sarah after raping Jennifer. Okay. I had the same reaction. I was was like, like, oh my God, did the boyfriend do it? (laughs) Yeah. But no, it was the same same man that transferred DNA. Wow. And none of this DNA found matched Maurice, Rob, Mike, or Forrest. Okay. And with that, the prosecution's case pretty much completely fell apart. Good. As it should have. Mm Mm-hmm. On January 7th, 2009, Judge Lynch set a hearing for March to determine whether Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen should be released from jail as they're awaiting this new trial to start. And this just kept getting pushed back. And then on June 24th, the state was still not ready to go to trial, so Judge Lynch ordered 
that both Mike and Rob be released immediately. Of course, they had many restrictions, but they were out of jail as the state continued to work to identify the fifth male. At this point, the state had tested 130 men that did not match, and they just weren't getting anywhere. By early August, Lynch granted one more postponement, giving the state until October 28th to decide if they were ready to proceed with a trial in January. And if not, he said there won't be a trial. This is the last postponement. October 28th, 2009 would be a huge day for the four men. Judge Lynch entered the courtroom and reminded the state that there would be no more continuance, no more postponement. He then asked if the state was ready. De La Fuente, the head prosecutor, stood up and shared the news. Beverly Lowry, the author of the book that I read, was actually there that day, and she said, quote, The state was doing a wide testing of the vaginal swab, but so far had nothing to offer. Since the judge had made it clear in August that he would grant no further postponements, De La Fuente said, quote, we have no other option than to file for a dismissal of the charges against these two men. So with that, both indictments were dismissed. The charges against Mike Scott and Rob Springsteen were finally dropped 10 years after they were arrested. Wow, 10 years in prison for something you didn't do. Mm-hmm. One of the defense attorneys commented to whoever left the DNA at the scene, saying, quote, because of you, four innocent men who had nothing to do with this were punished. We have your DNA. One day we'll match a face to it. And all of the lawyers and defendants were, you know, sympathetic to the families, saying that one day they hoped the real killer or killers would be found. The local newspaper the next day published an editorial entitled, Yogurt Case is Far from Closed. And the article blamed mainly the police and the state saying there were investigators who overzealously sought confessions and prosecutors who have been unable to successfully make the case. But despite all of this and despite the DNA evidence not showing anything, the DA, the Austin Police Department, and the families remained confident that these were the right suspects. These were the people who killed the girls, and eventually they would be retried and justice would be served. How? Why? Yeah, I don't know. You're, you have three male DNA that doesn't match any of the four four boys, or men. I guess they're men now. Yeah. How can you even say that? There's, there wasn't seven people there. I know. I don't know. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yep. In 2017, the Austin Police Department actually entered the DNA from Amy Ayer's body into a public database from the University of Central Florida Research Center. So this is a U.S.-based YSTR database that consists of over 29,000 samples that was originally meant for population research. All of the samples in the database are anonymous and can't be traced back to individuals, but the officer at the APD who found this database decided to submit it, you know, submit the, the DNA from the case to the database, and that entry found a match, which is huge. Mm. But the matching DNA in the database was submitted anonymously by the FBI with no name attached to it. And for privacy reasons, the FBI refused to release any information on the sample to the what? APD to investigate. What? Now, there's a federal statute from 1994 that prevents the FBI from being able to release the information 
And they also explained that this type of DNA could match to thousands of men with the same male profile so that it would be nearly impossible to use that information to identify a single suspect. Okay. The APD kept pressing, and over the next three years, they tried everything they could to get that information from the FBI, and investigators just became more and more frustrated as time went on. But the FBI has so far stood solid, stood its ground that they can't release the source of the sample, and that the DNA is not sufficient for matching to a specific individual. What's the point of running the DNA, like running that type of DNA then, if it can be matched to a thousand people? I don't know. That's yeah, I don't know. Useless. Yeah. The FBI holds that they were legally allowed to provide that anonymous data for the population statistic calculations, but that the information cannot be used to trace an individual. And their official statement said, quote, the FBI did not perform forensic DNA testing in this case and cannot speak to the case. Despite all of this, the family, the APD, and the prosecutors are still hopeful that one day there will be a DNA match. Some of the actual YSTR DNA from the sample still physically exists, but it's very limited. So they're basically right now waiting for DNA science to improve to test it, which I think is really smart because it's improving rapidly. And even though we're leaps and bounds from where we were 30 years ago, who knows where we'll be in another five. Right. Tips still come in on the case, and the Austin Police Department is continuing to pursue any new leads. There are several loose ends in the case, and this includes those Mexican men that at one point confessed and matched the witness statements of people in the shop that night. There's Kenneth McDuff, the man who killed Colleen Reed and assaulted at least 13 others in Austin in the 90s. There's the store manager of the party shop next door that never heard any gunshots despite being there. And there being that crawl space above the shops and the footprint that Reese Price had seen on the toilet that one day with Mm. the ceiling tile moved above it. So that's still a theory. Yeah. Or maybe it's someone they've never considered, including, you know, a crime of opportunity of someone passing by that night or the driver of one of the cars that was seen in the parking lot or one of the men that was inside the yogurt shop that multiple witnesses said gave them a bad feeling. Yeah. And many people still believe that Maurice Pierce, Forrest Wellborn, Mike Scott, and Rob Springsteen were involved in the deaths. But those questions remain unanswered to this day. And, you know, it's been 30 years. That doesn't mean there will never be answered, but there are still a lot of questions. Right. Today, a nail salon has taken over the storefront where I can't believe its yogurt shop once stood. Every morning, the employees of this salon, Classy Nails and Spa, burn an incense on a memorial plaque that lays across the parking lot to remember the girls. No. Maria Thomas, Eliza's mother, passed away unexpectedly in the spring of 2015. Barbara, Jennifer and Sarah's mom, was with her in her last days and helped her daughter Sonora make funeral arrangements. Barbara and her husband Manley run an on-call legal protection business out of their home in Kyle, Texas. And Bob and Pam Ayers, Amy's parents, live and work west of Austin, pretty much keeping to themselves. Rob Springsteen's first wife divorced him when he was still in jail, but he is now remarried and living in West Virginia. And he is still hopeful that with the help of his lawyers, he will be able to be compensated for the time he spent in jail. 
So typically when people are wrongfully convicted, they can be compensated for that time. Mm -hmm. But in this case, because they weren't technically cleared, like, yes, the convictions were overturned, but they weren't fully cleared from the charges. The charges were just dropped. He doesn't qualify for that. So he is working with his lawyers to try to change that. Right. Mike Scott and his wife divorced in 2015, and Mike moved down to Florida to work for a structural steel company. Forrest Wellborn still lives in Austin and works for a company called the Patriot Fence Company. Two defense lawyers who are friends with the former DA, Ronnie Earl, have shared that in confidence, Earl told them that he doesn't think the four boys were the real yogurt shop killers. And as of 2022, we are unaware if the state ever plans to recharge Rob Springsteen and Mike Scott. John Jones still has all of the case files in his office, and they've gone with him as he's moved over the years. He says that he can still see the images he saw in the yogurt shop on the night of December 6, 1991. (laughs) Jones also does not believe that the four boys were the killers and that their confessions were more or less coerced. And he remains hopeful that one day the real killer or killers will be found. It has been 30 years since Amy, Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza were brutally murdered in that yogurt shop. And to this day, justice has not been served for them. Their families ask that their names continue to be shared and any information that anyone has be shared with the Austin Police Department. If you've stuck with us through this entire three-part series, first of all, thank you. And secondly, I want to know what you guys think. Personally, I do not think the four boys are guilty. And I do believe that one day that DNA will find a match and the real killer will be found. I truly believe that. It might take another 10 years, but I truly believe that will happen. What do you think, Andrea? I'm pretty much on the same page as you. I I, I had my, my doubts about... Um, the one boy just because of a lot of Maurice. the things yeah Maurice but to know that he was so young and like there's just no evidence to prove that any of Mm-mm. them were even there doing you know anything yeah. to do with them at all and then of course now their DNA doesn't even match so that yeah. just proves that they were not there but I do think it was m- multiple people that were involved I do, too. And I do think that we are on the cusp of learning who those people are. Yeah. I definitely think it could be the two guys that were still in the yogurt shop when the last customers left or the last witnesses that ever said anything. Because, like, those guys never came forward. Like, if you were in the shop that night, why wouldn't you come forward unless you were guilty? And weren't they, like, not even eating yogurt? They were just sitting there? Yeah. 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 And I mean, we don't know. Maybe that was Maurice and Forrest or something like that, but we don't know. And I just feel like at this point, they would have cracked one of the boys, actually. And clearly the cracking that they did for Mike and Rob was not accurate. So, yeah. yeah. So I want you guys to let us know your theories on social media. We want to know. I'm very curious. So you can find us at Inhuman underscore podcast on Instagram or Inhuman podcast on Facebook. So please, please, please head over there. Let us know because I'm very curious and I'd love to hear, you know, all points of view. And now time for the details on our merch. (laughs) So our merch is dropping on Tuesday. 
So it will be going live Tuesday, 2-22-22 at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. It's going to be available all on our website, which is inhumanpodcast.com. So you can just go right there and click on merch and it'll be right there. I personally think we have so many fun, cute things. Um, you know, yeah. at least we think we do. Yeah. <laughs> but we have shirts, sweatshirts, hats, and even something for your babes if you're a parent listening. We also will have some stickers, phone cases, and more stuff. And we will be posting some teasers on our Instagram this weekend, so be sure to go check that out before to kind of get an idea. But we are so, so excited to be launching our first merch. Yes, and we're we so can't excited. wait to see you all rocking it. Yeah, and it's it's going to be super easy to order, and there's going to be literally something for every person who loves our podcast. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like a lot of different options and sizes and colors and stuff. Um, and since this is our first launch, we're also open to suggestions. So if there's other stuff you want to see, let us know. But yeah. we're so excited. So it will be available 2-22, which is this coming Tuesday. And it will open at 10 a.m. Eastern time, which is 7 a.m. Pacific and 6, no, 9 a.m. Central. Yeah, an 8 a.m. Yeah. mountain. And I don't know what time it is in other countries. I apologize. Yeah. And we just want to thank you guys because without you guys' support, we wouldn't have been able to do this at all. Yeah. We wouldn't even have anyone care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, so, we appreciate you guys so, so much. We really do. I hope do. you like the merch. We tried to price it. like We love it. As low as we could. And yeah. So that, you know, we don't want to, like, gouge you guys. Like, we tried to, to be as reasonable as possible because we know like i mean i wouldn't want to spend a ton of money on merch even for a podcast i love so right we're trying to to work everything out so that it can be as as cost effective and you know low price for you guys and we just hope you love it because we really love it yeah maybe we're like lame and we're gonna be the only ones that like the merch but we'll <laughs> we're see. gonna be the only ones rocking it <laughs> yeah but either okay. way we love you guys so so much Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode and listening to the entire three-part Austin Yogurt Shop murder series. If you did, I have been all consumed by this case. Like, it mm -hmm. has taken over my life, and I can't stop thinking about it. And yeah. I'm, I'm glad I got to share it because I learned a lot, and I also highly, highly recommend the book. I have it linked down in the show notes highly recommend because even though I covered a lot there was a lot I didn't cover right. and like I said the author was literally there for that trial so she gives a lot of really interesting insight and it's a really good book so go order that learn more tell us your theories and buy some merch yeah thank you guys so much as always for listening we will see you in the next one and until then keep it human bye